from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're all familiar by now with the big lie, the absolutely false notion that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 presidential election and somehow had it stolen from him. But where did that come from? Why have so many people really invested in believing in it? We're going to talk today with an investigative reporter who has done a deep dive into the origins and power of the big lie. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. And welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Let's start today with a fact. An unassailable, widely audited, thousand times confirmed fact. President Joe Biden won the 2020 election. He won it easily here in Michigan and in states all across the country. And there is no credible proof anywhere that that didn't happen. And yet, as the 2022 midterms approach, Republican politicians, both locally and nationally, continue to cling to the lie that President Biden did not, in fact, win the election, but that former president, Donald Trump, did and somehow had it stolen from him. This idea, this absurd idea, is known as the big lie because it both requires Republicans to believe a huge conspiracy that has been so routinely disproven and because it serves as a litmus test for whether you are a, quote, true conservative. Think of the men and women who say they want to be our next governor on the Republican side. All of them cast doubt on the outcome of the 2020 election and cast aspersions in particular on Detroiters who they say were part of some massive fraud that handed the election to Joe Biden. It's really infuriating. It's really frustrating. It's offensive. It calls on all kinds of ugly history in this country. But one of the questions that I think is still lingering about this is, how did this all begin? Where did this all come from? I remember so clearly election night in Detroit in 2020 and the mob that showed up at the former Cobo Hall where they were counting votes or trying to count the votes, yelling and screaming and trying to break in to disrupt the process. And then, of course, on January 6th, the next year, we witnessed a much uglier assault on our government and democracy in Washington as a much bigger mob attacked the Capitol to disrupt the certification of the 2020 election. Doug Bach Clark is an investigative reporter with ProPublica, and he's co-author of building the big lie inside the creation of Trump's stolen election myth, which details through internal emails and interviews with key participants, the extent to which leading advocates of the rigged election theory continue to advance evidence that they knew to be false, all in their effort to overturn the election. It is a really riveting look at the origins of the big lie. And that's where we begin 
the conversation today. Doug Bach Clark, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. So, as I said, we are all really familiar with the big lie by now. It is shaping politics on the political right and influencing politics and government uh, all across our country. But let's start here. What is the origin of the big lie? How did this false narrative get started and come to overwhelm so much of our politics? So the, the stolen election myth, or, or as some people call it, the big lie, draws from a lot of different places. You know, there, in the aftermath of the election, there are a lot of people claiming to have evidence that the election had been stolen. And we here at ProPublica, um, myself and then two colleagues, Alexander Berzon and Kirsten Berg, wanted to really look at where did this so-called evidence for a stolen election come from? You know, was this stuff that was just rumor? Um, was perhaps people intentionally fabricating it? Was there coordination? Um, you know, we really wanted to get to the bottom of how these ideas were created. Um, you know, there are many, many times that the election um, results were audited. It's not in question whether or not the election was valid or not. But so much of this evidence just started appearing and, you know, being passed up through Republican lawmakers and, and being promoted by President Trump. We wanted to look and see where those, that so-called evidence came from. And so, as I said in the open, I remember election night. I mean, before the election was really even called for Joe Biden, you had a mob of people mostly white, mostly from outside the city of Detroit, showing up in downtown Detroit to disrupt the counting of votes. And they were saying very emphatically that this was fraud, that there was fraud being committed. And it, it occurred to me even then, well, how would they even know this? I mean, they're just inside trying to count the votes. How How can you already say, well, there's something wrong with this count. So if we talk about the origin of this, obviously we have to go back before Election Day 2020. Is that right? That's true. And one of the things that we really zeroed in on during our investigation was a small coalition of people, some of whom had started spreading rumors or, or disinformation about how the election would be stolen, even in advance of the election itself. Um, and one of, one of those people was a conservative lawyer named Sidney Powell, and her and some of her allies really became fixated on the idea that, elect, that um, the election would be stolen through insecure voting machines, essentially that, you know, outside forces, um, you know, they, whether those were communist foreign governments or other sort of shadowy um, liberal forces would use, would sort of hack into voting machines and flip votes. And this was an idea that, you know, Powell herself was promoting the day before the election. Um, and then an idea that they kept pursuing after the election itself happened. It became sort of a very useful idea to them because, you know, it could explain how Trump could have lost by so many million votes. Um, and, and it was something that they pursued to an extraordinary extent in trying to prove. And um, despite being warned, even by their own investigators, that there wasn't really truth to this idea. Mm. So let's back up a little bit and talk about how we know, how we know for sure that this is a lie. Um, you know, there are a lot of people I have conversations with who uh, just don't don't wrap their minds around the, I guess, the volume and the depth of evidence that shows that Joe Biden won the election. Um, walk us through that, the, just the, the, the veracity and why we know it's as strong as it is. Well, so on, on the most basic level, elections are audited. Um, 
you know, the, every state, um, most most counties, most precincts do check their vote totals. And these are confirmed, you know, multiple, multiple times. This happened immediately um, after the election. President Trump's own attorney general, um, you know, informed him of the conclusions of law enforcement and the other relevant agencies that, um, you know, the election had been fair and free and that he had actually lost um, his you know, the, the agency within the Department of Homeland Security in charge of, you know, certifying these things also checked. Everything was fine. Um, but as I was saying before, you know, a lot of these ideas, it doesn't matter even if Trump's own people are telling Trump and the public, you know, actually the election was fair. A lot of these ideas kept being pushed by these small groups of people. Um, and one of the most impactful ones was, again, this idea that the voting machines had somehow been involved in flipping votes from Trump um, to Biden. And, um, you know, one of the things that we did was we went and we looked very specifically at the claims that lawyer, these lawyers like Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood or Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, were pushing and we tracked these claims all the way down to their source roots. And what we found was that this group had gathered um, at hotels in Washington, D.C., and then also at a plantation in South Carolina in the aftermath of the election and basically set up a headquarters. And at these headquarters, what they did was they solicited um, evidence of election fraud. And we were able to look at hundreds of emails that went to these locations. We were able to listen to recordings of some conversations from some of these places. And what we found is essentially they just cast, you know, they just told the, you know, the conservative public, send us any information that we have, you have, you know, we're going to go through this and, you know, try and find evidence of, of fraud. And, you know, in multiple, multiple cases, which we detail in the article, they would be sent a tip. Um, they would do very little vetting of it or insufficient vetting of it and then push it back out into the world and, you know, at which point it would be con- it would either be taken up and repeated by the White House or it would be taken up and repeated by other conservative allies. And one of the most incredible things was that when they did check out some of these tips that they were getting, they were often told by their own investigators, you know, they, um, that these witnesses or the tips they were getting were not credible um, in one case, you know, we have a a recording of a man who was working for them, um, a former uh, National Security Administration official named Jim Penrose, who who says on this call that he spent $75,000 to hire a team of um, former FBI investigators to go check out this rumor that planes from Asia had been flying in hundreds of thousands of ballots for Biden to Arizona. And what these investigators found, he explains on the recorded call, is that it was all a rumor. Um, And, you know, to quote him, that it was all bullshit. And he goes through multiple iterations of this rumor that, you know, him and his allies spent, you know, a very significant amount of money and time trying to check out and, you know, found that they were absolutely nothing. And yet these claims still, you know, uh, ran on for months and months and months. Um, you know, another ally of, of this group, a man named Doug Logan, who ended up running the Arizona audit and who was aware of these claims not checking out, you know, he ended up trying to, you know, reconfirm them in the Arizona audit itself mm-hmm. or to, to recheck them out in the Arizona audit itself. I'm talking with Doug Block. Clark, uh, investigative reporter with ProPublica and co-author of Building the Big Lie, Inside the Creation of Trump's Stolen Election Myth. We're talking about that big lie uh, that has absolutely shaped politics in our country since the 2020 election. Uh, There are people who believe it and there are people who don't. I think those are maybe uh, the starkest camps, political camps uh, in the United States right now. Um, We're talking about the origins of that lie and why so many people have been so quick to believe it against all of the evidence that shows In fact, uh, Joe Biden did win the presidential election and Donald Trump 
did not. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation uh, as well. Uh, call and tell us what you make of the Republican Party's response to the 2020 election. Uh, are you a Republican or do you consider yourself a conservative? Uh, what would it take for you to believe that the election was valid? Or are you a Republican who does believe the election was valid and you're also frustrated by the prevalence, I guess, uh, of conservatives and Republicans who say that the election was stolen? Um, we would love to hear your thoughts on the party's actions during this election cycle, uh, the kind of litmus test that is being given to candidates right here in Michigan, for instance. Uh, all of the gubernatorial candidates on the Republican side have cast some degree of doubt on the outcome of the 2020 elections. How can that be so? Uh, and how can we govern ourselves uh, with such a... a cataclysmic rift uh, between right and left, where we can't even agree on the outcome of an election. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we can uh, include you in the show that way. Uh, of course, I also want to hear from folks who don't believe, or, or I'm sorry, who don't believe that uh, the election was fair. Call and tell us why you believe that. Call and give us the evidence that you have that suggests that there was, quote unquote, cheating uh, in this presidential election. And tell us why you believe that. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to social media and put comments uh, and put comments there. Um, I, I want to talk about Antrim County, Michigan, where uh, big lie proponents argued that a clerical error had switched roughly three thousand votes to Joe Biden. Um, they think that's proof of election fraud. I, I think this is a good example of the eagerness, I guess, with which so many people. Um, are jumping to find anything at all, any thread that would support the idea that there was some sort of shenanigans in the election. Yeah, so the incident you're referencing is, is really important in the sort of origin, the history of, of where the stolen election myth comes from. And on election night, um, the Antrim County, Michigan, reported that uh, Biden had actually won the county, which was a big surprise because it's uh, Trump country. It strongly was expected to go to Trump. And, you know, the, over the next few days, as the results were audited, um, it was found that there had been a clerical error that had switched, um, you know, several thousand votes and, and, call, and caused um, the, the, the county to swing from Biden or from Trump to Biden. And so they corrected those errors. Um, the county clerk and, and others owned up to it. Um, it was just a small human um, error in terms of updating some of the ballots. And um, in normal times, that would have been the end of it. However, because there really wasn't, you know, examples in many places of, you know, votes actually moving back and forth between candidates, a lot of Trump supporters really focused on this batch of votes in Antrim County. And um, the, this coalition that I've been talking about, you know, they were very interested in voting machines and the idea that, you know, voting machines might have been programmed to flip votes. And so they thought, OK, well, you know, maybe we can find some evidence of these voting machines flipping votes. So what we have to do now is get access to these voting machines in Antrim County. So they sent up a small team of people to Antrim County and who were able to convince some office workers there to give them access to some of the voting machines. And using that access, they were able to, um, you know, see that the, the see that discrepancy that came from human error. And they were able to get an image eventually of the hard drive of those machines. Um, and from that, from the data from those machines, they created what was called the Antrim Report. And this Antrim report was very, very explicit in saying that it had found um, technical evidence, you know, in the computer logs and in the code of the machines that um, 
proved that the, the machines had been signed, designed to flip votes, that the election was stolen. And it even went so far as to claim that all of this was bad enough that the you know, election results in Antrim County could be decertified. And this report was very widely promoted by Trump, um, as well as his allies. You know, it was used by the president um, to lean on the Department of Justice in order to, you know, um, try and help his efforts to challenge the election. But when we, you know, really, really dug into the origins of that report, one of the things we found was that the original report, the technical report, was not what was later issued to the public. And the original report did not make such strong claims of election fraud. Um, We talked to two of the people who were involved in creating the original report. And they were very clear that, you know, they had seen some things that to them seemed a little bit suspicious, but they were not saying, you know, decertify the election. They were not saying that they had found proof of fraud. And what happened was, according to them, this report was given to um, a man with strong political (laughs) conservative leaning who then rewrote the report and put it out. Hmm. Um, So one of the sort of... What, you know, many supporters of the stolen election myth think is of as one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the stolen election actually didn't even say that in its original version. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about uh, the lie that uh, somehow the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Uh, Doug Bach-Clark is going to stay with us from ProPublica. And we are going to get to you on the phones and on social media. John on the east side, Pat and Troy, Ed in Detroit, you will be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Our guest is Doug Bach Clark. He's an investigative reporter with ProPublica and co author of Building the Big Lie Inside the Creation of Trump's Stolen Election Myth. That's what we are talking about this hour. Uh, the idea, the absurd idea, in fact, that Donald Trump somehow won the 2020 presidential election and had it stolen from him. As Crazy as that might sound, it is uh, it is a pivot point right now in our politics. There are a lot of people who believe that's what happened, uh, despite mountains and mountains of evidence that it didn't. Uh, you have uh, lots of Republican candidates for office uh, this year in the midterm elections who are not only believers of that big lie, but uh, enthusiastic believers of it, people who are proudly talking about uh, election fraud that doesn't exist. Um, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, Call and tell us what you make of the Republican relationship to uh, the big lie. Um, If you're a Republican who doesn't support uh, that, that, um, that lie, we would love to hear from you about what's going on in the party, how you would like to see things be different. Um, But if you're somebody who does believe in the big lie, we want to hear from you too. Uh, Call and tell us what evidence has convinced you that uh, Donald Trump had the election stolen from from him. Where did you get that evidence? uh, And what led you to to believe uh, this actually false uh, statement? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. 1019, that's 313 577 1019. You can go to Facebook and Twitter as well and put comments there. Let's start with Pat in Troy today. Pat, what's on your mind? Well, I, I heard that over the weekend that Clarence Thomas spoke out and said that people in the United States are going to have to get used to outcomes that they don't agree with. Okay, well, his wife was a major factor in disputing Joe Biden's win. Isn't that just 
it's just typical of a victim. Hmm. Turn hmm. and it just found it too ironic. Yeah, I, you know, you. I'm uh, Pat. I'm really glad you called and and raised that uh, that point. Um, it, it is a strange. It is a strange turn of events, I guess, that that uh, Justice Thomas came out and said what he said, given the reports um, that that uh, had surfaced just days earlier, really, about the extent of his wife's involvement with uh, with the with the big lie. And you know, look, yeah, you you want to give people the benefit of the doubt as much as you can. Um, but there seems uh, certainly to be a, a rather darkly cynical uh, motive behind that. I mean, it, it is the ultimate in, in, in gaslighting. Um, but uh, Doug Buck Clark talked just a little uh, about the role that Ginny Thomas and other prominent conservatives um, are playing in, in perpetuating this. Uh, in, in fact, in her instance, there's a direct connection, I guess, to uh, the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. So, you know, of the group that we were looking at, this sort of small coalition of people who are sort of gathering the evidence and then sending it to other high-level people in Washington, D.C., there's actually a direct connection between this group sort of, you know, gathering the evidence and then sending it to people like Ginny Thomas, um, who, you know, then spread it to Trump and Mark Meadows and elsewhere. And, you know, there are text messages that were gathered by the uh, Congressional Committee investigating January 6th, in which Ginny Thomas is, is um, texting to Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff, staff and, you know, basically promoting Sidney Powell who is the lawyer who's gathering all this evidence, you know, so-called evidence for election fraud and saying, you know, uh, you know, you should really trust Sidney Powell. She, you know, she's the person who's going to save us. She's, you know, this judicial, this legal strategy, you know, this is what we should pursue. We should be, you know, all of this is credible and good. She's, she's really backing Sidney Powell up. And so in those text messages in other emails and other things that we've been able to see, um, you know, you can really see sort of the, food chain of information. You know, you have these people sort of on the ground gathering it up. And then, you know, someone like Sidney Powell can, you know, tell someone like Ginny Thomas, who can then tell, um, you know, Mark Meadows or Trump's chief of staff, or, or, you know, she can tell her husband, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. And there's no real evidence of Ginny Thomas, you know, fact checking some of these pretty outlandish claims that Sidney Powell is making. She's just accepting it basically on faith, um, it would seem, you know. And so, you know, if someone in a position of power is not actually betting what claims they're putting out, you know, that just drives sort of the, that gives license to some of the more outrageous claims and for the ability for them to enter the Republican mainstream Mm -hmm. as claims of fact, when in you know, in reality, they haven't ever been checked. And and this statement by Justice Thomas about his concerns, his fears about uh, eroding faith in democratic American institutions. Um, you know, th- th- this is the the this is the, the the line, I guess that that some Republicans have taken about. Um, about things that they don't like that uh, liberal or progressive causes have done. Here, it it does seem like this is a bit of gaslighting, and there's a lot of that kind of approach uh, that we're seeing from Republicans, this idea of um, don't watch what I do, listen to what I say, um, you know, ignore ignore the man behind the curtain kind of, uh, you know, kind of narrative. Um, that is an important part of the believing of uh, this big lie by Republican supporters. The the um, well, again, the gaslighting that's that that's going on, the 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 misleading, the the the, the kind of um, uh, dissembling that that takes place uh, from leadership uh, that says, oh, "No, we really are about uh, we really are about protecting institutions, not tearing them down." One of the things we were really looking to try and do in, in our investigation was to 
you know, follow how these claims made their way from their point of origin, um, you know, all the way to the White House and, and also into the mouths of, you know, other prominent and powerful Republicans. And, you know, I think on the whole, what we found is just a, a willingness to accept any sort of idea that um, might help keep Trump in power and that, you know, that rather than looking rather than doing enough vetting to get to the truth, they were accepting, you know, uh, ideas of convenience that might further a cause rather rather than actually fact checking an idea like whether or not, you know, Venezuela had helped, you know, hack the election. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Um, let's go next to Tom in Royal Oak. Tom, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Um, so I've got a question here. Um, so if people within this ecosystem understood that this is fabricated, why, like, why do it? What's the, what's the goal? What's the outcome? What, what is their strategy aiming for? Like, is this to actually overturn the election or was this uh, more of like a litmus test for politics going forward? I don't know. Um, yeah, God, if you got something. Yeah, yeah, great question, Tom. Uh, Doug, Doug, what's the answer? You know, it's I, we can only, you know, I try to keep my my thoughts and statements specifically to what, like, you know, the internal emails or the recorded conversations that I've seen or heard, you know, say. It's it's hard for me to speculate on, you know, what what private someone something is, you know, held privately in someone's mind. But there was just a really distinct pattern in looking at all of these communications of them being warned that, you know, some of this evidence is not valid. Um, And this, you know, this starts, you know, from very shortly after the election and goes, you know, um, you know, almost up to the present day. And, you know, it's either that, you know, some of them, you know, when we talk to them, you know, sincerely told us that, you know, I... I believe the election was stolen and, you know, maybe this piece of evidence was wrong, but, you know, on the whole, it had to be stolen. And and I just, you know, I I have to believe this and I do believe this and, you know, I've dedicated my life to it and I'm going to keep going. Um, But I think, you know, so I think some people are just really locked in and really committed to this idea. Um, And, you know, one experience that we had in sort of, you know, coming back to them and being like, look, this, this, piece of evidence which you helped create or that you promoted is not really standing up, you know, they would admit it, but then they would just move on immediately to the next thing. And they would say, oh, but have you looked at, you know, this new report that I helped put out or this new claim that, you know, about, you know, now finding new evidence for the stolen election, you know, three weeks ago or whatever. And it just becomes this endless cycle of, you know, trying to um, whack-a-mole just claims that keep popping up and keep popping up, despite the fact that repeatedly, you know, in their own communications or in their own, you know, speech, they, they have internally recognized that some of these claims are not real. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to also talk about the money that is involved here. Um, and, and there are lots of different dimensions, I think, of that discussion. But one is is the number of billionaires who have spent a lot of their own money to try to prove that uh, the 2020 election was fraudulent. Mike Lindell, who's the CEO of MyPillow, I think is someone who comes to mind popularly at this point. Uh, he says he spent $35 million to, to prove uh, that the election was not was not on the up and up. Uh, the former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne said he spent twelve million on election integrity. I put that in quotes. Uh, efforts through twenty twenty two. This is about donors in some ways. Um, that that are that it's different from it being about ideology. It is about money in some ways, that is different than the ide- ideology. Can you just give us a little, uh, a little primer on, on the role that cash is playing in, in all of this? 
Well, as as you've noted, um, you know, one of the key things to keep continuing to fuel some of these claims is, is that there are people who are paying for the people that make some of these claims. So you've noted um, two of the people, Mike Lindell and, and Patrick Byrne. Um, but I think one thing that's sort of hidden from more mainstream America is that there exists this whole economy around these claims in which there are all of these, um, you know, people making them who are um, earning money off of social media or other um, sort of influencer ways of monetizing their claims or who are just being paid, you know, by individuals like Patrick Byrne and Michael Lindell. And, you know, that has become in some ways and in some respects, you know, their, their livelihoods. Um, and there's not, you know, these people can just keep going and, you know, doing this, you know, 24 seven, you know, as long as there is the funding and, and the help to do so. And so it's, it's very hard, you know, so it will keep going on um, as long as there's money to fuel it. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the big lie, its origins, its power, and um, and uh, I'm sorry, actually, we're we're not going to do that. We're going to switch subjects. We are going to go to talk about the Malcolm X Opera opening here in Detroit. I want to thank Doug Bach Clark for being here to talk about the big lie. Doug, it was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Again, when we come back, we're going to switch topics and talk about the life and times of Malcolm X, uh, the new opera at the Detroit Opera. The composer of that opera, Anthony Davis, is going to join us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Malcolm X was a minister, a human rights activist, and a prominent black nationalist leader who served as a spokesman for the Nation of Islam during the 50s and 60s. He was a naturally gifted and inspirational speaker, and for many, his life is mostly remembered through the phrase, by any means necessary, a statement that we still use to talk about the passion behind the move to end racism and other forms of inequality in America. But the life of Malcolm X can't be boiled down to just that four-word phrase. And as we reflect on his struggle to end racism nearly 60 years after his murder, this weekend, the Detroit Opera is going to premiere a work inspired by the man behind these words, described by the New York Times as a riveting and uncompromising work. Pulitzer Prize-winning composer Anthony Davis's opera, X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, casts an unflinching look at one of the most influential men in American history. It premieres at the Detroit Opera House on May 14th with additional performances on May 19th and on the 22nd. I want to welcome Anthony Davis to Detroit today. Great to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. I'm glad to be here. So let's talk about why it was important for you to create this opera about Malcolm X, uh, when you did originally back when it premiered in 1985, what, what were you thinking about the idea of this as a subject of an opera? Well, it, it seemed, it seemed obvious to me that the, the story was, uh, a story of a tragic hero and tragic hero is a trope that you see in opera, you know, like from, you can even go back to, you know, Wagner operas, et cetera. And I, I wanted to do an opera, particularly about that, that, that uh, some, some, something about the, the, someone who's was important, really important to the black community, and the idea <clears throat> that we could represent, tell our stories through opera, and transform an opera into a medium that can 
that can effectively tell stories about the, the black experience. And uh, yeah. I felt Malcolm was a model for how to move forward. I mean, you can't, I mean, today, for example, I can't even imagine uh, Black Lives Matter as a movement without Malcolm X. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to 1985. That's a really different time in America than 2022 is. And I really wonder what the reception for the idea of an opera about Malcolm X was then. That's just 20 years after uh, after he yeah, was yeah. murdered. He was still pretty much a, I mean, he was still pretty much a pariah in in popular American culture at that point. Um did 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 people look askance at the idea that this opera should be performed? Well, it was certainly more contentious in 1985, and I think uh, one of the factors was uh, uh, this was just a year after the Jesse Jackson campaign, you know, um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, there was all the response to uh, you know it, Jesse Jackson's association with with Louis Farrakhan, and you know what that meant, particularly in New York City. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, I remember the New York Times headline was uh, Malcolm X anti-Semite question mark. That was the week before the opera opened, you know. So I think that... That was a story about the opera? That was the headline yes, of the story? Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh my <laughs> so, so you can see that. See that uh, and conflating Farrakhan with, with Malcolm was more than ironic, you know. So I think that... Uh, so there was a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about Malcolm and Malcolm's positions, and also, uh, uh, and, and I think some uh, opposition within the artistic community and the certainly the philanthropic community around. You know, when we did a New York City opera in 1986 uh, in New York. So, uh, so, but I, but I think you know, um, it's a different time now, and Malcolm, Malcolm, if anything, has grown in importance. In terms of you know what he what he represents to for black people and also also what he, what he represented in terms of the the idea that uh, the oppression of black people is an international issue it's not just a our issue it's you know an issue you know dealing with South Africa dealing with the Caribbean dealing with South America and he and and Malcolm's been an important symbol across across those borders. Yeah. So I want to talk a little about the music, of course, that uh, that makes up this opera. I mean, it incorporates all kinds of styles of music, but uh, but of course, it uh, includes music that's developed and beloved by African American musicians, swing and scat and bop, even hip hop. Uh, talk about why that was important to to make up the the, the opera. Well, I think in, uh, in the initial conception of the opera, when my, uh, and it sort of happened when my brother was in a play, El Haj Malik, playing the role of Malcolm X in the play. And after, after seeing him in the play, he, we had a con he talked to me about, said, said that I should write a musical about Malcolm X. And uh, I thought it wasn't really a musical. I really thought it was an opera because of the nature of the story. Um, but the reason he was drawn to it was when looking at the autobiography and looking at how, what the references to music were. You know, that Malcolm was around the music all the time. You know, from, you can look at from this Boston period all the way to through the, to the end of his life. You know, he, the, there's a parallel between the, his political development and evolution and the music and how the music had developed, you know, from the late 40s, let's say, with... Uh, you know, uh, you know the jazz and swing of the '40s to the you know through bebop to to modal jazz and 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 the avant-garde of the '60s. Mm -hmm. So I think that 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 was very interesting to me in terms of uh, and and part a part of the initial conception of the opera. As I developed the opera more, I began to find things that tied the music together, unifying ideas. That would that would go across genre, so that wouldn't be so much a pastiche of different styles, but more of a unified vision in terms of music. Wow, wow! So I I really want to talk about uh, the lead role here uh, and and who's playing it. 
uh, in this in this instance, Devon Times, um, who I've talked to um, uh, before, and I just was blown away um, in the interview with him. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the hearing his voice, uh, I've gone online and and watched him oh, sing. Yeah. This this is, I mean, this is a powerful, powerful. Um, intonation of the character that uh, that is you know is featured in this uh, in this opera I, I just want to give you a chance to talk about what people will see if they go if they go see this in this incredibly powerful performance yeah well he's riveting he's he's a uh, committed performer who uh, I think brings us also the passion of an activist to the to the role because he is he has been an activist and as an artist you know mm-hmm. in, in his own presentations doing his own uh, concerts and developing developing music I think he's an innovator within within the opera world uh, and I think uh, that really comes through that passion that's that commitment that sense of activism uh, the dynamism and charisma that he has as a performer uh, and that that translates very well and, and when I uh, you know, first thought that we were going to do a revival of, of this opera, and I had uh, and and Devon has performed Mal- Malcolm's Aria, which ends Act One. He's performed it with the Philadelphia Orchestra and also in Britain with the BBC Orchestra. So, uh, so I I knew how how dynamic he was as a performer, and uh, um, so I was I was very excited to to have uh, Devon uh, play the role of Malcolm X here in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also want to give you a chance to talk about why you want to do this in Detroit. Uh, this is an opera that hasn't been performed for a long time. You're bringing it back. Uh, we have strong ties to Malcolm well, here in Detroit, of course. But uh, what of course, was going yeah, well, that, well, that's cool. I mean, he was Detroit Red. <laughs> you know, that was his that's nickname right. that's in right. Boston and New York. And, and so uh, I think that, you know, he's... His ties to Michigan and Detroit are really rich, and and uh, uh, Malcolm spent a lot of time here and a lot of time here in in Michigan, and was as particularly in his formative years, and I think that uh, so it seemed to be a natural fit. I mean uh, that that Detroit would be a place that to see this opera, and uh, so I'm very excited to that we were able to bring the uh, the opera here, and uh, I'm also that you know. Working working with Yuval Sharon, the, the artistic director, sure. uh, yes, and uh, I think and Wayne Brown, the CEO here of uh, Detroit Opera, has been a, been a great experience too. Uh, so since you composed X, you also created really acclaimed operas like uh, Amistad, Wakanda's Dream, and the Central Park Five. I think there's a real theme there in in the work uh, about how we tell our own stories uh, in a way that is different, though, from experiencing those stories through a book or a movie. I mean, this, this medium that you're doing it in, um, it, 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 it is powerful in a very different way. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a very different from a film, for example, or a novel. I mean, uh, in a way, I think opera gives you a lot of freedom because <laughs> one thing about opera is not really the idea that people sing. It's not just a, not really a realistic medium. So you, right away you're right. Uh, you, you're a step away from the, the reality. But the, then, you, then you can do, deal with like uh, the emotional idea. You know, what, what's, what are the emotions behind what hap- what's happening? Also, you know, what are the forces behind it? You know, the, the for, you know music can represent, you know, you know the powerful forces that shape shape events in history. So that that's something that I've been fascinated with. You know, and and trying to capture, you know, in music what what are you know uh, crucial junctures and and collisions that are happening in our history. You know that that are cultural events as well as as well as embedded in our history. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The opera is X. The Life and Times of Malcolm X. It is premiering at the Detroit Opera House on May 14th, uh, and there will be additional performances on May 19th and May 22nd. Uh, Anthony Davis, uh, composer, 
uh, of X. Really great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining. Oh, thank us. you so much. Yes, uh, and yeah. please, everyone, come out. Come on out on May fourteenth. Yes, absolutely. and the nineteenth and twenty second. That's right. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk with author Bruce Levine about Thaddeus Stevens and why Americans have a hard time agreeing on their heroes. Thaddeus Stevens, of course, was a crusader in Congress against slavery, but a pretty complicated figure. We'll talk about what those complications were. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. can double or even triple your gift to WDET with a matching gift from your employer. Check with your human resource department to see if your support qualifies for a match and let your coworkers know they can join Team DET too. Join Detroit's NPR station today at WDET.org. The Anti-Abortion Coalition has mirrored and drawn from the narratives and tactics of supremacist movements. Looking at decades of anti-abortion language and materials, you can see how much it accommodates racism, white nationalism, anti-Semitism. Their shared goals and differences this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Russ McNamara. Join me for All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 4 on 1019 WDET. WDET is supported by Metro Times, Detroit's alternative news weekly, delivering local news, culture, and music stories Metro Times style via email. Subscriptions for the weekly issue, what's going on, and food newsletters at metrotimes.com. On January 19th, 2019, Tammy Charles called for her son. She needed his help with the groceries she'd just picked up. He never responded, so she looked for him around the house. I looked over my shoulder and I saw the back of my son hanging from a noose that he had made from his belt. Not my baby. Not my baby. Her son had taken his own life. He was 10 years old. Youth suicide has been on the rise across the United States, and for young people between the ages of 5 and 12, the suicide rate for black children is nearly double that of white children. And the pandemic has made the situation even worse. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today on Point, the mental health emergency for children of color. Stay with us. Live from NPR.